I don't know where your life was at in March of 2020. Um, I was in a bit of a quirky spot. I was just three months into a new role at a new church. I was at the tail end of a difficult season of tumultuousness, you know, of life and community and health and vocation all being turned upside down. You know, but now I and we were here. And finally, life was going to settle into some rhythms of stability and restoration. Enter pandemic, stage left. Two days from now will be the two-year anniversary of my good friend Jen's death. She was 54 years old. She was the 11th COVID case in Niagara, the second death. And she was a beautiful soul. We had all just barely learned the word COVID, and she was gone. A few months later, another vibrant, kind, young, and uber-healthy friend named Mark passed away from cancer. Two weeks after Mark's death, my Uncle Dave, who was more like a dad, died suddenly. This past January, Dave's younger brother and his father died within three days of each other. You know, I was not looking for a degree in loss, but I feel like I'm earning one. Anybody else? You know, that's just one category of loss. There has been such a disintegration of life all around us, of the world we thought we knew. There was so much difficulty and turmoil, confusion, constantly shifting landscapes. I cannot tell you the number of times in the past two years I've said the words, this can't be happening, right? Like, it's not possible for this many pieces to be falling at once, is it? You know, my family, along with everyone else, has gone through the ringer these past two years. We, along with so many of the rest of you, are not very okay. The truth is that in the wake of this pandemic, and even saying wake is a bit of a misnomer because it's not like this is over, there is a debris field of emotional wreckage on the ground from so much disruption in such a short period of time. You know, everyday losses of close, warm contact, of faces and smiles and presence in both the big moments and the everyday beautifully mundane. We've lost a bunch of the rhythms and routines of life, simply the way that work or school or church happens. We've lost each other relationally through conflict, judgment, mistrust. We've lost economically. Some of us have lost great big things, once-in-a-lifetime things, long-hoped-for things, desperately needed things. And I have so frequently found myself wanting to close my eyes and cover my ears and just say nope to it all. We are often scared to look too closely at pain because we're afraid it'll overwhelm us and we won't be able to swim. And yet seeing our pain clearly is actually the beginning of learning how to move through it without going under. So we're going to look closely for a few minutes, but we'll do it together. Your loss can kind of be broken into two basic categories. First, there are bad things that happen to us that take something away. You know, not just in COVID, but 
Throughout life, we suffer losses over and over. Loss of people, of relationships, of love. Loss of health with a body or a mind that no longer works the way it used to. Loss of things, of economic security and stability. Sometimes the things we've lost are harder to put our finger on, but we feel them nonetheless. You know, emotional things that are taken from us when we experience trauma or live through seasons of pain and chaos. Things like a sense of belonging, the ability to trust, the feeling of being safe, wanted. Even our ability to hope for the future can feel taken away. Another kind of loss are the good things that didn't happen to us, but should have. You know, that now leave a gap where they were supposed to be. We've lost graduations and milestone celebrations, weddings and funerals, and all kinds of meaningful experiences that never got to happen. And maybe it's partnership or education or security and love or opportunities that you should have received in life that just haven't materialized. Those are losses, they're real and they matter. Where have your deepest losses been these past two years? There's there's something fundamental at our core that cries out when loss is experienced, when there's a, a ripping apart of something that mattered. And one of my least favorite things in the world is when people try to minimize that and try to rosy it up and soften it up. When they say some version of, well, it was obviously meant to be. It's just part of life. <laughs> we do it with good intentions, you know, out of compassion, sometimes out of faith, but often out of a need to make sense of things that just don't. And I think our insides know better. <laughs> So they don't cooperate very well with that minimizing. Now, when we say this is just part of life, we forget that this is not the life that we were made for. You know, pain and tearing apart of losing and death in whatever form. You know, our origins are in Eden, in eternal goodness, and in life moving towards ever-increasing harmony and wholeness. Why do death and loss feel so wrong? because they are so wrong. They are incongruent with our essential nature. And yet loss is our current reality because we live in the land of already and not yet. A world filled with the presence of Christ and yet not yet full of the presence of Christ. So we must learn how to grieve our losses without losing hope, knowing there are profoundly beautiful things to be found along that path. And we'll miss them if we don't actually take the journey. In Psalm 34, it says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 56 puts it even more poetically, saying of God, you collect my tears in a bottle. So tender. There is a holiness that happens inside the crucible of pain, a closeness of the presence of God that often goes beyond our normal experience. If we can soften ourselves enough to sense it. 
And it's not just that God is close when we ache, but that God, God's self, experiences his own grief. We catch glimpses of that in scripture, whether it's Jesus crying out on the cross, losing his life, or sweating drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane, begging, take this cup from me. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as a man of suffering and familiar with pain. But maybe the best picture we get of God in grief is in John 11 and the story of Lazarus' death. Now, Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. Together, these three were some of Jesus' closest heart friends. You know, they had history together. It shared intimate moments. This, this wasn't the general crowd. These were Jesus' friends. And when Lazarus got sick, Mary and Martha sent for Jesus, saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. Three times in the passage, John notes the love between them. But Jesus didn't come right away, as they'd expected. And Lazarus died. By the time that Jesus gets there, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Martha runs out to meet Jesus. Mary stays back. But eventually, they both say the exact same sentence to him. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you, Jesus? I thought you loved us. Now we can pull up from the story for a moment, and in case you don't know where it's going, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's going to call him out of the tomb. He's going to invite the community to take the grave clothes off of him. He's going to give Mary and Martha their brother back. He's going to embrace his friend again. Jesus knows all this. He knows this is how the story's going to end. That's real. That's true. And it does not erase one ounce of the pain and the grief of the moment they are currently sitting inside of. With Mary weeping at his feet and her gentle but honest accusation hanging in the air, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33 goes on. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Verse 35 is famous for being the shortest in all of scripture, perhaps one of the most powerful. Jesus wept. He simply grieved. For one holy moment, he did nothing but cry. For his friend, for the sisters, for his own broken heart. Now he'll go on to do the things, to right the wrongs, and, and in this story, to literally undo death. But that doesn't matter in this moment. This moment comes first. You know, Jesus brought the fullness of his presence and the fullness of his heart to this moment, and he joined them in the holy belly of grief. 
Jesus knows what I think our guts often know, which is that grief has to come first before resurrection ever has a chance to break through. So grieving is not a lack or a breakdown of faith. It is the stuff of Jesus. It's the natural and healthy response to loss that's real. It means you're paying attention. The question is just, how do we not get stuck there? You know, how can we come to know that we haven't been abandoned by God in loss, though we can feel that way, but that in fact, we are being held tighter than ever before. And to know that not as an intellectual understanding from a Bible story, but as our own lived experience. If the holding power of Christ is right there in pain, how do we practice being held? I think it helps to realize that grief is both an emotion and a skill. And it needs to be journeyed through in order to make it to the other side. And that journey can look a million different ways and it'll operate on a million different timelines. But in my experience, at least, the key moves seem to be facing the emotions in the presence of community through practices and rituals that hold and heal. And one of the most common, but also most harmful things that we do when pain hits is to try to avoid the emotions because they feel big and, and that can be scary. We think, if I go all the way there, I'm afraid I won't return. Yet in his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Francis Weller says, the reality is much more that if you don't go there, you might never return. You know, unprocessed emotions wreak all kinds of havoc in our lives. In Learning to Walk in the Dark, Barbara Brown Taylor says it well. She says, sadness does not sink a person. It is the energy a person spends trying to avoid sadness that does that. And culturally, we've made happiness into the new Mecca, believing that that's the only place to find God and fulfillment. And our refusal to acknowledge grief and death has actually twisted us into a culture actually riddled with death-like existence because we don't know how to move it through. I said earlier that we were not made for this, but that doesn't mean that you don't have every skill necessary to, to ride the waves of grief and to come out even more beautiful and whole on the other side. And trying to avoid or run from the emotions only increases the trauma in our souls. I don't know about you, but when loss hits hard for me, I spend a lot of time saying no. Like, literally, no, 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 no. It's very effective in altering reality. Learning to grieve involves turning that no, no, no into, yep, yes. This thing that I desperately did not want to happen that hurts so badly has happened. It is happening. It's learning to say, yes, this is broken and it hurts. And to sit inside that emotion until we felt it all the way through. Believing that Jesus is right there with us at that internal graveside, weeping right alongside of us. 
And in that presence, we can look more honestly at things. You know, we can glimpse that anger, for instance, is merely sadness in disguise, trying to protect itself. We need to pull that mask off so we can feel the real thing. We glimpse that grief, in fact, is often simply heartbroken gratitude for something beautiful we had and have now lost. In the words of Marvel, what is grief but love persevering? It's love that's lost its place to go, that it's actually beautiful, even as it hurts. And we can't rush grief worrying about pointless questions like, shouldn't we be over it by now? I mean, if it's not done, it's not done. Let it be. Keep moving. The skill of grieving involves staying present, awake, and alive to all that hurts, embracing the accompanying presence of God, even without many or any of the answers that we would prefer to have from God in the middle of it. We have to get down to the raw, honest guts of our emotions to move them through, to let them do their holy work in us. You know, you are strong enough for this. You're strong enough to be weak. Often I think we're unable to hold the full weight of grief because we're trying to hold it on our own. And so we move best through grief by facing the emotions in the embrace of community. Francis Weller again says, grief is an intensely interior journey that can only be navigated in the presence of community. This is the solitary journey that we cannot do alone, which is also a pretty good descriptor of a life of faith in general. So much of how we experience the love and the care of God is through the love and care of one another. Now, I experience the presence of God by experiencing God's presence in you. We feel held by God when we're held by one another. Grief needs companioning. We see this in the Lazarus story. You know, Mary and Martha were together. Mourners had come to be with them. Jesus came to be present in the pain. There is a strength and a holiness that comes from taking the hard journey together that changes the nature of the hard journey. We need each other. That's a big part of what has made these past two years so difficult, the loss of that. So who is your community? And how are you letting them walk you through your grief? There are good and bad ways to be community to those who are grieving. Grief needs companioning, but mostly a quiet companioning more like witnessing accompaniment. We don't push or pull. We don't say, why aren't you over it yet? We don't try to explain the unexplainable. If, if you are uncomfortable with grief yourself, it's, it's hard for you to accompany other people well. The best thing you can do for someone else is to make friends with your own grief. You know, otherwise, you'll want to rush it or answer it, and, and neither of those are helpful, even if they were possible. Accompaniment is simply love-filled presence. You know, it's safe space to pour out raw, unfiltered emotions, to stomp the ground and say bad words, or to say nothing at all. You know, it's not being left alone in what you alone have to do. 
it's a hot meal or a word of love. It's being remembered. It's, it's space to be honest and to be held when you yourself don't know how to hold on. And it is holy, holy ground together. So we face the emotions in the presence of community. And finally, through rituals and practices that connect us to the healing presence of God. I said earlier, one of the most harmful things we do is try to avoid the emotions. But probably the second most harmful is to hold too tightly to them. You know, finding spiritual practices or even what you might call grief rituals that help us to both hold tighter to what is and was good while simultaneously releasing the pain of what is gone allows grief to be moved through instead of becoming an overwhelming force that just pins us to the ground and leaves us there. You know, practices of, of hold and release, hold and release, not into the empty air, but into the very real hands of God. And honestly, that could be a hundred different things. It isn't about one magic ritual that will finally make it done. It's about finding ways to embody the emotions wrapped up in loss in a manner that points our hearts to Christ. Grief is such a deep and visceral experience. It's almost like an electrical charge that builds up in the body and needs to be discharged in order to be worked through. And so the practices that process that best are, are often similar in intensity and physicality. And I will give you some of my favorites now, but for even more specific ideas, just check out the Practice This Week doc on our website. So crying is a practice. You know, finding your will and not fighting it, but letting that just come up and out. Literally like holding and being held. Like learn to hug tight. Do you let yourself be truly held to experience the close, affectionate presence of Jesus through another human? It heals things in you. In ancient cultures, they would often rend their clothing, like just rip something apart as a way of expressing the rip that they were feeling inside. That's a practice. I like that one. Pilgrimages, you know, going to places that represent the losses you've suffered can be powerful. People often go to cemeteries, and, and we don't go to grave sites to tend to the dead, but to tend to our own grief. I've sat beside my dad's headstone and cried and yelled and written bad poetry and watched the wind in the trees and looked for God in the stars and somehow gotten up an hour later feeling lighter instead of heavier. Oh, writing letters that will never be sent, but with words that still need somewhere to be said. Burning those letters, or, or planting things, or breaking things, or building things. Like finding physical ways to keep holding and releasing, holding and releasing the pain of what is not as it should be. Finding music to echo the ache in your soul. Like, do you have a personal lament playlist of songs? I do. 
drumming circles and chanting practices and finding those ways beyond words to express the inexpressible as the Spirit of God intercedes alongside of us with groans that words cannot express, as the Bible says. And watching the rhythms of nature in the world is a powerful spiritual practice, especially in grief. You know, watching death and resurrection again and again as the seasons change, reminding us of the ever-renewing presence of the God behind it all. And we do these things again and again and again. I think closure is a bit of an illusion. We don't get over grief, but we can learn to move through it, like continual waves on the ocean. In time, you learn to surf better. In time, the waves get smaller. But why should you get over it? You are changed. The world is changed by both the love and the loss. You will be metabolizing that reality for the rest of your life, and that's okay. You don't get over it, you, you learn to move through it beautifully, powerfully, healingly. And the more you do that, the more of a gift you will become to those around you. Beautiful things grow in the ashes of even the fiercest fire. There is a beauty found in brokenness that expands our hearts. A depth that gets built in the darkness. And when we witness that together, it strengthens our community. It strengthens the fabric that holds us all. And when we journey through it with broken-hearted courage, it heals and transforms not only us individually, but our entire world. Death leads to resurrection when we can look it straight in the eye and meet the gaze of Jesus there. There's a prayer I only came across recently, though it was first said like 600 years ago by Julian of Norwich, and it's becoming my favorite thing of late. It says, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And I don't hear that like a dismissive pat on the head. Oh, don't worry, all is well. I hear her much more saying, things are not well, and they're really not well. And everything is not well yet. But that one day, it will be. Know that what I see right now is not all there is to be seen. And what feels true right now is not all that is true. Yet is a very big little word. I know you've lost much these past two years and the however many before that. And it hurts, as it should. But I believe we can hold on to each other, utter the grief-filled wails as we need to, and somehow still see the dazzling streaks of light breaking through the darkness in the middle of it all as we learn to move through the grief together, held in the light and the love of Christ. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Amen.